passage this morning is found in Genesis chapter 32. We'll be looking at verses 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 32. It is printed there on the bulletins if you do not have your Bible with you this morning. Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 22. The same night he, that is Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jebok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When he saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let us together go to the Lord and ask his help to learn from and understand his word. Father God, we come to you this morning, knowing that you indeed hold us fast. That you, Jesus Christ, our Savior, love us so, and that you have given us your word. And by your spirit, you help and instruct us and guide us into all truth. Would you do that this morning as we listen to you speak to us through your word? May my words be true. May your word revive your people, refresh your people, encourage and comfort. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite things to do growing up was to wrestle with my dad. The couch, my parents' bed, the living room floor, the pool, each provided a suitable setting for a match. Sometimes I would try to catch him by surprise, hoping it would give me some kind of initial advantage. Maybe I'd sneak in on a Saturday morning when he was just between asleep and awake, or a sneak attack as he's sitting on the couch watching TV. Other times, one of us would either would just give each other that look, or someone would say, usually me, I can take you. And I have attempted to bring some of that same wrestling spirit to my own family with limited success. So far, wrestling in my house is whenever we are rolling on the floor and someone, anyone, is saying, wrestle, wrestle. So I guess I'll, I'll take that for what it's worth. Now, most of you do not know my dad. And few of you have met him or have seen him. My dad is six foot two. I'll spare announcing his weight in case he watches this, um, but just leave it at my dad is bigger than me. He has always been bigger than me. When I was younger, our wrestling matches looked more like those videos of puppies playing with their older dog brothers. I pulled his arm, I sat on his back, I wrapped my arms around his head. I was a nuisance. It did not take much for those matches to end. As I got older, our matches matured, but only slightly. 
I had a little bit more muscle I could use. I was in better shape than him, and I could make him sweat, maybe just a little, or at least get him to breathe just a little bit heavier. But all it took for my dad to win was to roll his six foot two frame on top of my five foot seven frame. I would squirm for a bit, but eventually tap out. And to this day, I'm not exactly sure if I ever got any better at wrestling my dad, or if he was simply being gracious. It always seemed as though he got some kind of pleasure of watching me exhaust myself and trying to pin him, and ended things out of mercy. And even if I were to wrestle him today at 62 years old, the end result would not be the same. The match might go a little bit longer, but I would still lose. Our passage this morning looks at the account of one of the most famous, maybe the most famous wrestling matches in Scripture. This one, however, is not a playful match between a father and a son. It is a struggle between two men. One is anxious, but physically strong and resilient. The other is mysterious. He's unknown. He's even divine-like. They wrestle throughout the night. And the end result of the match is somewhat surprising. The victorious one is not the one we would expect. Jacob certainly, however, does not leave this encounter the same as when he entered. He bears the scars, not of violence or of punishment, but of kindness and grace of his opponent. Now this passage may seem a little bit like an odd choice for graduation Sunday, because graduation speeches and graduation times where phrases like, the time of your life, gets thrown out. And while this may prove true for some, the reality is there is no time of life that is the best. Every stage, each stage is filled with ups and downs, with joys and sorrows. We will wrestle, we will struggle, whether we're in college, whether we're single, married, parenting, retired, empty nesters, whatever, you name it. And while on the surface the wrestling match may seem like it is against those around us, like Jacob, we ultimately find out that we, are, we learn that we are wrestling most often with our God. We wrestle as we seek to understand what it is that he's doing. We wrestle as we seek to submit to him. We wrestle as he conforms us into the image of his son. But all the while we are wrestling, God is consistently gracious to us. He is kind. He seeks our good. His aim is to bless. He wrestles with us. And Jacob learns this firsthand. God is abundantly gracious to his children, even as we struggle in our relationship with him. The grace and compassion of God permeates this entire scene. At each and every step, we witness God being kind and gracious to his people. The outline is printed there in the bulletin for you, three ways that demonstrate the grace of God, even in wrestling Jacob. First, we see that God reaches us in our loneliness and our fear. And then God removes our strength. And then finally, God renews us. Together, may they encourage all of us, not just our graduates, but all of us, that as we wrestle with our Heavenly Father, He will be gracious.
gracious and kind to us. So first we see that God reaches us in our loneliness and our fear. The story begins with Jacob all alone. It says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children. He crossed the ford. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. This is a bit mysterious. Why does Jacob go to such an effort to be alone? Does he need time to think over a strategy? Is he anticipating something? aside from Esau's arrival. The truth is we don't know. The scriptures do not say. But what it does say is that Jacob is by himself. He is alone. His family is not around. His servants are gone. The comforts of home, if you will, are absent. He is alone in the dark of night. And even for me, as an introvert, I am not envious of Jacob in this situation. I love my me time, but this takes me time to a whole new level. But the truth is, there are times when life will look like this. We are alone. Sometimes in the dark of night. It might be by choice, as it was for Jacob. It may be by circumstance. Maybe by consequence. Loneliness is a regular condition even for the people of God. We can expect and we should expect to be there at certain times. But Jacob isn't only alone, he's also afraid. We know this if you look back a few verses in chapter 32 in verse 7 and 11. Where Jacob, as he prays to the Lord in verse 7, it says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And then in verse 11, as he's praying, he says, For I fear that Esau, he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Remember, if you can, Jacob's story to this point. He and his older brother Esau started battling with one another in the womb. Jacob is the crafty, the witty one. He's both strong of mind and strong of body. He has gotten to where he is at, both good and bad, because of his ambition. At one point, Jacob swindles a famished Esau into giving up his birthright. He trades him for a bowl of stew. And roughly 15 years before this passage, Jacob swindled his blind and aging father, Isaac, into giving Jacob Esau's blessing. And it was after that event that Esau swears, I am going to kill Jacob. And so Jacob flees for his life. He goes to his uncle, with whom he has also relational difficulties with. And it is finally 14 years later where Jacob is ready and told to go home. But before he can make it home, he has to face Esau. He must pass through his brother's land with all of his possessions, with all of the things he loves and holds dear, out there in the open. And to make matters worse, it is reported that Esau is coming with 400 men. Jacob is terrified. This is not in the movies where the hero kind of sits and waits for the foe to arrive. Jacob has already sent Esau a lavish gift to hopefully calm and still any anger that might still be there. 
and he's prepared to split the family to hopefully keep the blood spilled to a minimum. And here we can find that not only can we expect times of loneliness, there are also times where we will be terrified. We will be afraid. It could be like Jacob because we know something is coming. It might be also because we have no clue what's coming. And when at times fear makes friends with loneliness, when they come together, it can be paralyzing. Chronic or serious sickness can make us feel afraid and lonely. Relational difficulties, doubt, and sin can do the same. None of these include the physical scenarios. I can only imagine what must have been running through Jacob's head and his heart as he's alone in the dark waiting for Esau. One time a college group of us went for an evening hike with only two flashlights. Not a good move. And after a nice bonfire, we decided to hike back to our cars in the dark. Two friends and I, we got split from the group, and of course, we were the ones without a flashlight. While not completely alone, it certainly felt like we were alone. And there was also this suspicious noise constantly coming from behind us that did not sound particularly human or friendly. It brought a little bit of fear to the hiking party. This combination had us kind of on edge the entire walk back to our car. Jacob is probably feeling something very similar. Even worse, though, because there's nobody around him. But notice then what God does with Jacob in the midst of his fear and his loneliness. God engages him. It says that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Notice in that sentence, Jacob is, the, is, not the, he is the object, not the subject. The mysterious man is the one who instigates this wrestling match. He's the one who seeks out Jacob in his fear and his loneliness. And at this point, we have no idea who this man is. The reveal doesn't come until the end. The writer keeps that from us strategically. And again, this kind of begs the question, why would Jacob randomly sh struggle and wrestle with a random stranger who shows up in the middle of the night? Don't sign me up for that. I would not have been so brave. I'll admit it right now. I probably would have just took off running. back. I would have run right across the stream and got back to my family and be like, we're good. However, we may not know exactly. Maybe he thinks it's someone from Esau's camp. Maybe he thinks it's just someone wishing to do him harm. We do have the advantage of seeing, though, that it is God himself. Whether it's as an angel representing God, whether it is God in the form of a man as he appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18, or maybe it's the angel of the Lord without the title who often shows up in the Old Testament, the one who many believe is a manifestation of God the Son in the Old Testament, the one who has power and authority and who's also given honor and glory. We don't know exactly who this man is, but we know it is God who meets Jacob in the middle of the night. He comes to Jacob. He draws near to Jacob. He enters into his loneliness and his fear. Jacob will learn that even when he feels the most alone, he is not alone. Even when he feels abandoned, he is not abandoned. 
God knows where he is. God comes to where he is, and he reaches to him. For each and every one of us, when we are lonely and afraid, we can be confident that our God is near. He comes to us. Sometimes he comes to us to comfort and to encourage. Other times it may be like Jacob. We find out he comes in a way we're not expecting. But either way, it is a demonstration of his grace and his kindness to his children. He does not leave us to fend for ourselves. He will meet us in those moments, no matter how dark the dark night of the soul might be. God reaches to his people in their need. But not only does God reach in his grace and his mercy to his people in need, he also in his grace removes them of their strength. This sounds, I'll admit, a little bit oxymoronic. How is God stripping us of our strength, a demonstration of his goodness? Seems a little odd. I believe progressing through Jacob's story will show us how this is and thankfully can be true. Jacob is strong. Look at verse 25. As a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day, when the man, this isn't Jacob, the other man, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob is when he finally touches his hip. Jacob holds his own in this match. In high school, my friends and I would occasionally wrestle or box one another. Most of the time, the winner would just get bragging rights. The boxing matches would be at most one-minute rounds capped out at three rounds. The wrestling matches stopped whenever one was pinned or tapped out. The matches were always short-lived, it didn't matter who was in them, but the combatants were always huffing and puffing at the end of them, whether they were one minute long or five minutes long. It took every ounce of energy just to make it to the very end. Jacob wrestles all night with this man. He has the kind of stamina that any Olympic boxer or wrestler would envy. And this shouldn't surprise us. Jacob's life has been marked by his strength. He came out of the womb with a death-like grip on his infant brother's heel. He single-handedly moved a stone covering of a well, which caught the eye of his future wife. He was a successful shepherd, which meant he knew how to fend off predators from his sheep. And by this point, he's already walked thousands of miles on foot with all of his possessions in his journey. Throw on top of that the intelligence and the wit, and you have the picture of a strong and capable individual. His physical strength, his mental strength, resulted in him having a growing family, countless herds, and vast wealth. So you can almost see that with each and every passing hour that he survives this fight, Jacob's confidence is likely increasing. He's going to make it to daylight, and he will best, and more importantly, catch who it is he's wrestling with. And so maybe now we can start to get a picture of how God stripping Jacob of his strength is a picture of his grace and his kindness. We are prone to think and to act like Jacob. Our nature encourages us to do that, to boast in our strength to put our confidence in our wit and our abilities. Our culture tells us to celebrate it. 
And it is true, God has given each and every one of us gifts and talents and strengths and skills. We are called to use them. Unfortunately, we like to use them for our own glory more than the glory of God. We place our confidence in the gifts instead of the one who has given them. We think that we have a certain level of invincibility because of the blessings God has given us. And this leads Jacob to be stripped of everything but God himself. Listen to what God does. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. God literally lames Jacob. Touch could mean a strike. It could have been that God gave some kind of knockout blow to Jacob's hip, or it could simply mean he touched him with a finger, with a hand. The context isn't clear. In his patience, though, we see that God restrains himself as he wrestles with Jacob. But then as daylight approaches, the one who seems to be the weak one shows his incredible power. Thankfully, I have no experience to draw upon but as a sports fan, I have seen more than a fair share of devastating lower half injuries. And I know there are people sitting here today who you've been a recipient of a devastating lower half injury. The only thing a person can do in those situations is grab the injured part and scream out in agony. It is the natural response when we injure ourselves. But notice what Jacob does. He grabs hold of the only thing he can lay his hands on, God himself. He latches on like he did his brother's heel and does not let go. And it is here where we see kind of behind the curtain of what is really going on in this wrestling match. Because for all of his wrestling to this point with Esau, even with his parents, with his uncle, Jacob is seen here to actually have been wrestling his entire life with God. The human struggles with but symptoms of the greater struggle he had with his creator. Despite it being prophesied that Jacob would be the blessed and loved son of Isaac, he sought to get that blessing on his own strength and his wit. He was dependent upon himself to secure that blessing, not God. God was more often the obstacle that stood in Jacob's way. And so God, in his grace and his mercy, crippled him. Jacob finds that he cannot overcome God. He cannot muscle God into giving him what he wants. He can only cling to him. He can only lean on God as he would now have to lean on a cane or a crutch for the rest of his days. He can only cry out, bless me, please. And we find out this is exactly what God intends. This is how Jacob actually wins the match. Verse 29 says very clearly, And there God blessed him. Jacob leaves with the blessing he's been seeking after. He leaves with the blessing he's been wrestling for. But the irony is he gets it in spite of his strength and his wit. He gets it by losing everything but having only God himself. Edmund Clowney on this passage states 
Faith wins when it knows all is lost and clings to God alone. God is gracious to us even as he teaches us how to cling to only him. We don't know how to do it. It's not natural to us to cling to him. And so for our graduates, you can expect God to bring you to a point like Jacob, when all seems lost. It may be during your four years of school. It may not be. I have no way of guaranteeing that. But if you're not convinced, can I encourage you to go ask anyone older than you in the faith? They have been there. Some of them are here even now. They'll probably not sugarcoat it for you. They'll tell you how bad it could be. But they will also, I am convinced, tell you that God has done and taught them great things in such hopelessness and lostness. Because God has taught them how to cling to him and to him alone. They will proclaim what Paul wrote and what Jeff read earlier. That God's grace is sufficient for you. That his power is made perfect in weakness, in your weakness. And therefore, we can boast all the more gladly that we are weak. Because when we are weak, we are strong. For all of us, we can expect God will remove our strength from us at times to highlight our weakness. It is not because he's mean. It is not because he's angry. It is precisely because he's good and he's kind and he's gracious. He is teaching us. He is showing us how to rely on him, how to hold fast to him, how to cry out to him. And as we sang just a moment ago, we will struggle to hold on, but our God will not. He will not let us go. So we've seen that God in his grace reaches out to Jacob in his loneliness and his fear. And we've seen then that he strips Jacob of his strength And finally, in his grace, we see that God renews us. In his grace, God does not leave us where he left us. God is not a bully who comes and takes our stuff and then runs away and leaves us on the ground, whimpering and crying. Even when we struggle with him, even when we struggle against him, God does not treat us that way. He will strip us of our strength. He will humble us. But afterwards, he will come and restore us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. He will show us even more of his abundant grace and kindness. For Jacob, we see that his renewal comes via a new name. His wrestling partner tells him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. But Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. On the surface, this name change fits, because Jacob, as you will recall, means either he grabs at the heel or he cheats. Jacob has lived up to his name. Israel, on the surface or the foremost, means God strives or God prevails. And from the moment Jacob Jacob was born, God has certainly been striving with Jacob. It seems that he has finally prevailed over this stubborn servant. But notice that God puts a little twist on the interpretation of his new name. He emphasizes it's actually Jacob, the one who has prevailed. 
which seems a little confusing. Is God somehow admitting that Jacob has bested him? No. Again, as Edmund Clowney writes on this passage, he says, in that name, Jacob's desperate faith is acknowledged by the Lord. Jacob's name reflects his changed status as now a man of faith. And such faith will certainly prove valuable in the days and the years ahead. Just think of the whole situation with Joseph. What would sustain Jacob through that awful endeavor? Be the wrestling match that happened here. Will Jacob learn to cling to the Lord? No, Jacob is not declared perfect from this moment forward. He is still going to struggle. He is going to be tempted to rely upon his strength and his wit at times. But he's not the same. He's renewed. He's changed. He is now Israel. His faith has been tested. It's been proved genuine. And even when his faith stumbles, the name Israel will still ultimately point to the one who does not stumble. The one who will always prevail. God himself. Now God isn't necessarily going to rename us every time we struggle with and against him. If that was the case, we'd probably all get new names every day, which some of you might like. But in Christ, God does promise to renew us. He confirms that everything he is doing is to grow us more and more into the image of his son. And even on days when that seems impossible or unlikely, we still bear the name of his son through his spirit dwelling within us. It confirms that God has and is saving us. Because through Christ, true Israel, he will prevail. But not only is Jacob renewed with a new name, he is renewed in confidence. Jacob leaves this encounter humbled, thankful, and confident. Notice how he began, lonely and afraid. He has received now the blessing that he sought, whatever it is that exact blessing was. Maybe it was confirmation of the promise made to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, that it would now be genuinely his. Maybe it was the blessing that Esau was not going to kill him tomorrow. The text is not clear exactly what the details of the blessing were. But Jacob names this place after the events. And then he limps back to his family. And he names the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. You can almost picture Jacob limping back to camp, exhausted, but beaming. He probably has a smile across his face. Because it is in these two verses where the mystery is finally solved. The identity of the man is none other than God alone. Jacob has spent the night in hand-to-hand combat with God, the God of his fathers, his creator. And Jacob is able to walk home. Sure, he has a new scar to show for it, but that is nothing compared to what it could have and likely should have cost him. God was gracious to reveal him, to not reveal himself fully to Jacob. It would have killed him. He told Moses that on the mountain. God was gracious not to destroy Jacob when he simply touched his hip. And how does this give Jacob confidence? Because meeting Esau is suddenly not so bad. 
Is Jacob unsure of how it's going to go? Yes. We'll see, you would see that if you continue reading in chapter 32. He doesn't know how Jacob's going to receive him until that moment comes. But he has already endured this struggle against God. He's endured this struggle against the chief antagonist of his life. The one who desires to bless him. The one who, by clinging to him now, he is confident heading into this next struggle. Again, graduates, as you prepare to leave home, know that you're going to struggle. Your faith will be tested. You will feel at times like you're wrestling. And God loves you to engage you in this way. In his grace, he will certainly weaken you. But know that as in his grace, he will also faithfully renew you. He will show you his strength, as we read, is made perfect in weakness. He will give you confidence even as you limp away from the latest match you had wrestling with him. And this applies not only to our graduates, but to each and every one of us here who are in Jesus Christ. And when we think about it, the particulars of this event may surprise us, but the truth of God showing abundant grace to his people should not. The way God engages and works in Jacob is the same way that Jesus Christ engaged people during his earthly ministry. Jesus reached out to those who were lonely and afraid. Think of the woman at the well in John 4, the bleeding woman in Mark 5, or the disciples seemingly daily. He engaged them with kindness even when they were alone and afraid. Jesus removed the strength of the confidence of the confident, typically with just a word. He humbled Nicodemus in John chapter 3, telling him your works of the law are going to get you nowhere. He did the same to the rich young ruler who walked away sad. And he even told Martha to stop serving what she did best and sit at my feet and listen. And Jesus also renewed those who held fast to him. Zacchaeus, Peter, the sinful woman who anointed his feet, left encounters with Jesus renewed, restored, transformed. Jesus was never afraid to wrestle with those who came to him. He struggled with them in their unbelief, in their doubts, in their fears, their sorrows, their loneliness. He did it because, as John says, it is from his fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. Because grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We can rest knowing that God is gracious and kind to us. He does not turn his children away. He has and he continues to show his kindness and his compassion in Christ to us each and every day. I'll admit it's been a while since I wrestled with my dad. Who knows, maybe I'll challenge him the next time I see him. Maybe I'll feel confident that the day has finally come when I will best my dad. Of course, I know it won't. There are certain laws working against me, not only the laws of size, but just the laws of fathers and sons. But if I did wrestle him again, I know that my dad would be gracious. He may inflict some pain here and there, he will certainly let me exhaust myself and try to gain the upper hand. 
but he will still be gracious nonetheless. He will put me away gently, if you will. And it's not because he has to. It is not because he can't crush me if he wanted to. He will be gracious and kind to me because he is my dad. He cares for, he loves me, his son. And even in a silly wrestling match that ultimately means nothing, he seeks for my good and not my harm. If that's true of my dad, who is imperfect, how much more true is it of our Heavenly Father? Because he is far greater than any dad. He is compassionate and kind with each and every one of his children. He engages us, not to harm us, but for our good. And if you are ever in doubt, in the days ahead, in the years ahead, the months ahead, look to Genesis 32 and the battle he has with Jacob. From beginning to end, God meets Jacob with grace, with kindness. To the one who resisted him, who kicked and screamed at every turn, God showed him incredible patience and goodness. And he promises to do the same for you, for me, who rarely act any different than Jacob. We are invited to wrestle with him. We are invited to draw near to him. Because God is abundantly gracious to his children, even as we struggle in our relationship with him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for passages like this that show us ourselves. That we are ones who are constantly wrestling with you, struggling with you. Sometimes it's over our doubts, over our sins, over our fears, over our loneliness, over our circumstances. And God, despite the fact that we have more than enough evidence to trust you, to rely upon you, we don't. And you are still gracious and faithful and compassionate to us. May that encourage us. May that encourage specifically our graduates and those this morning who are weak and weary. May they know the grace of our God, the grace of you, to engage them in their struggles, to show them compassion and kindness. And may it teach all of us to cling to you with all of our strength, knowing that you are the one who will hold us fast. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior.